Brother Doug, when I moved to Loosedale, Ed and Jackie had only been married 24 years. That's when I came the first time, 24 years. That was 40-plus years ago now that I moved to Loosedale the first time. I moved to Agricola. Actually, I lived down in the far country. And, uh, but I'm up here with you now, glad to be here in Loosedale. Some of you have come here today with your life surrounded by the fog of your own circumstances. You can't see through that fog. What makes it worse is the conditions in our world. You can't figure out what's going on in our world, and it brings you a great deal of anxiety. Uh, some time ago, uh, some of us went through a study called Experiencing God where a man named Henry Blackaby said, you should never look at God through the fog of your own circumstances. Rather, you should go to God and go to his word and allow him to show you your circumstances from his perspective. That's exactly what we find in the book of Revelation. We find a group of God's people who were in difficult circumstances. They couldn't understand what was going on in their lives and in their world. And the Lord gave them a picture of heaven's champion walking in the midst of their churches. Now, in our lives and in the history of this world, as you and I know it and as we have lived in it, and I'm speaking to the people sitting in this room and the people listening now, I'm speaking to our own circumstances. Never, There has never been a time when you and I needed a clearer understanding of what God is doing than we do right now. And so the only way to find that is to hear from God himself. Therefore, Jesus said to these churches in the book of Revelation, let him that has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches because the Spirit speaks from the perspective of heaven. Now this morning we're going to look at the church at Philadelphia, the church where uh, to those people, to those believers living there, it seemed to them like all the doors were closed. And we're going to hear the message that Jesus had for them. Perhaps it's the message that Jesus has for you today. As you are surrounded by the fog of whatever shuts you in or shuts you out. Beginning to read in the book of Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will call, cause, the, cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him 
a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I have four very simple uh, points in this outline which will hopefully help us understand this passage of Scripture and also help you understand the message that God has for you today. Number one, we need to answer the question about who the people are who are hearing from God in the book of Revelation. Now we look, we see the church at Philadelphia, yes, but we need to go all the way back to the beginning to the very first verse of Revelation chapter 1 where uh, we have written the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things which must soon take place and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So the question we need to ask for just a minute this morning is who are these servants? I remind you that the message of the book of Revelation is directed to them. And so when God wanted to send a message to his servants, he sent an angel to his servant John. And in Revelation 1-4, we see John. We find him writing, taking his pen and writing John to the seven churches in Revelation. Now, the word servants is used ten times in the book of Revelation. I'm going to refer to every use of it, just summarize for just a minute here. The first time it's used, of course, in chapter 1. But when we get over uh, to chapter 2, we're introduced to the church at Thyatira, and it is God's servants in the church at Thyatira who are being led astray, his servants. In Revelation chapter 6, Verse 11, some of God's servants are in heaven. They are dressed in white robes. Their souls are underneath the altar. And they're crying out to God, asking how long will it be before we're vindicated? And God says to them in Revelation chapter 6, verse 11, that they were told they should rest for a little while, a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, God's servants are marked for protection by a seal placed on their foreheads. Now, remember, uh, we're looking at who the book was written to. In Revelation 10, 7, we read in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And then in 1118, we read a particularly relevant message for the present time. I think it's relevant because I just want you to hear the context. The nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. 
of these servants to whom this book is written. We read in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The book ends with a final admonition to John in Revelation 22, verse 6. These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his servants the things which must soon take place. I am telling you, these servants are in these churches. They are in God's church today. You are God's servants. We are God's servants. He sends this message to us because he wants us to see the circumstances of our world and of our lives from his perspective. Number two, in this book of Revelation, God makes a clear distinction between the people who belong to him and those who do not. Now, those who were his people are a part of the church in Philadelphia. Those who were not were members of another group. It's important for us to understand this distinction because it's a distinction that still exists today. What is that distinction? That distinction is made clear in verse 9. Follow along. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now the question that we need to ask in the context of where they were living, were these false Jews? No, they were not. They were Jews. But they were Jews like the ones Paul found in many of the cities where he preached the gospel. Think about it now. Engage your brain just a little bit in what you know of the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, we read about a plot of the Jews to put Paul to death. In Acts chapter 12, we read that Herod, the king of, of, of the Jews, beheaded James, one of the apostles. And because he did, when the Jews, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. You know about Peter, how he was put in prison, and how an angel opened the prison doors and he was delivered. In Acts 13.50 we read, But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Now I'll bring up those passages to show you that what the Christians were facing in the church at Philadelphia was a group of Jews who were persecuting them, who were uh, causing them problems, who had shut doors against them. This was a problem faced by the early church in the New Testament. Now, why did the Jews of Paul's day and of John's day oppose the church? It's because they were lost. They were lost. And I'm, Paul said, he wrote in Romans, I remind you, in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, he said, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. 
Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And then in Romans chapter 10, in the very first verse, he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. In Paul's day, the Jews were lost because they didn't receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read you a passage from, that might help you understand this. We're putting this in the context of the book of Revelation, and we're also saying this because I think it's important for us to get our gospel straight. I don't think the church has its gospel straight. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, not like Moses, not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not in, look intently at the end of what was fading away. In other words, when Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, he came down and his face was glowing with the glory of God. That was a wonderful thing. But what Moses did was he put a veil over his face, not so that the people wouldn't be scared, but so that the people would think that the glory stayed. We do the same thing in church. We put veils over our faces and pretend to be holy when we know we're not. But we want to look that way so people will think we are. Preachers are the worst ones. But here's the problem. Paul said, as a result of what Moses did, their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. In other words, they think the glory is still on Moses and the sacrificial system. But he said, it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And of course, he's talking about turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to listen because some of it is happening in this community. Any person who tries to be a Jew to be a better Christian is actually turning away from the Lord Jesus Christ and placing the veil of Moses back over their eyes. But these Jews in Philadelphia continued to reject Christ and they persecuted God's servants in the church in Philadelphia. Jesus said, and he gave this warning to his people in John chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. This is what Jesus said. I did not say it. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God a service. That's what Paul thought when he was persecuting Christians. That's what the Jews in Paul's day thought when they persecuted Paul. And that's what the Jews in Philadelphia thought when they were persecuting the Christians in the church in Philadelphia. But in spite of the difficulties they faced, Jesus said this about the church. You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. You've kept the word of my faith, my patience. In the face of open hostility to their faith, they remain faithful to Jesus in their circumstances. Are you remaining faithful to Jesus in their circumstances? Today, as the world stands on the brink of war, the greatest need of the life in the life of a Jew is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. My goodness, they need to be saved. The greatest need in the life of the Palestinian is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's the greatest need in the life of the Iranian. That's the greatest need in the, in the life of a Russian. That's the greatest need in the life of a Chinese person. Jesus said, I am come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they were all lost. And that's why they're lost. That's why Jesus came, because they needed Jesus. They needed a Savior. They didn't need sacrifices of bulls and goats. They needed the blood of the Lamb over the doorpost of their heart. They do today, and they will until Christ returns. So, he says next, the power available to God's people in times of difficulty. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, who has, he who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. Well, the, the Jews probably said to these Christians, we've got the key of David. We've got authority. We, we, are, we are God's people. We, we are descendants of David. Well, they said that in Jesus' day too. You remember? I'm helping you understand the gospel. I'm telling you the church has the gospel confused. Jesus said to the people, they said, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been slaves to anyone. And Jesus said, you may be Abraham's descendants, but if you were truly Abraham's descendants, you would know me. You'd recognize me. They said, we have Abraham as our father. What did Jesus say? He said, your father's the devil. Because they were lost. They were lost. All people who are lost don't belong to Jesus, no matter their genetic origin or their religious origin if they don't belong to Jesus they're lost because the Bible says I think our New Testament still says this there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus didn't we just sing it isn't that what we believe isn't that what we preach don't get confused don't think a person is okay if they're a Jew they're not okay unless they trust Jesus as their Savior. That's why evangelism is so important. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem because Paul said, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they will be saved. They'll come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Didn't we just sing it? But that's not exactly what sometimes we, the way we talk. So Jesus said, I have the key of David. I have the the, the key that opens all the doors that are shut to you. I can free you from anything that shuts you in or shuts you out. He holds the keys to hurt and heartache. He holds the keys to sickness and disease. He holds the keys that will open the door to your future. He holds the keys that will unlock the chains that bind you from your past. When we look at life through the fog of our circumstances, it may seem to us that all the doors are closed, but Jesus identifies himself in this book of Revelation by the same name that the emperor of Rome identified himself. The emperor of Rome called himself the Pantocrator. That's a big Greek word that means I rule everything. But Jesus said, I am the ruler of the kings of the earth. And in the first chapter of Revelation, he said, I am the Pantocrator. It's the same Greek word, only it's translated in our Bible, the Almighty. And he holds the keys. What is it that has a hold of you today? What is it that shackles and imprisons your spirit? What lie of Satan has you locked in or locked out? Remember, Jesus holds the keys. 
He said to them, I know your deeds. Behold, I put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Finally, we need to look at the promises made to God's people in times of difficulty. And here we have them in this book. And I believe this book of Revelation is a practical book. It was practical for them. It's practical for us. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him in the name of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Here Jesus speaks of an hour of testing. That does not mean 60 minutes. It's not talking about an hour on your watch or an hour on the clock. It's talking about a significant moment on the calendar of history. Jesus used the same expression speaking of himself. He said, my hour has not yet come. This significant moment on the calendar of history is about to come on the whole world. This is what he said to those in the church at Philadelphia. Now, this is no doubt a reference to that great tribulation foretold in Scripture. You know there are seven churches. We said that. There are seven spirits of God. We observed that. We said seven churches is not just because there were only seven, because it's a message to God's complete church, not just to seven, but to his complete church. There are seven spirits of God, not because God has seven spirits, but because Jesus has the fullness. He's the one who has the seven spirits of God or the fullness of God's spirit. And there's seven years of tribulation, which we can't take away the fact that that's literal, but we also need to understand that there's an element of fullness and completeness to that. And part of that is going to be a persecution on God's servants by the Antichrist. And a part of that is going to be God's judgment poured out on those who dwell on the earth, on the kingdom of the Antichrist. By the way, in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth are always unbelievers. Always. Always. And God's people are exempt from that time of testing. They're sealed from it and protected from it. The hour of tested, testing mentions here likely refers to that period. It, it does not promise that the church will not encounter tribulation, however. It promises that the church will escape the judgments of God that will fall on those who dwell on the earth. And those who dwell on the earth are different from those who are classified as God's servant. Now, when we look at this passage and we try to sum it up, and what in the world is it saying to us? It's saying to us simply this. The future of the church is going to look very much like the future that faced the seven churches. Perilous times are coming when our security will not rest in who we are or what we own, but in whose we are, who we belong to. So in the face of that coming trial, Jesus said to this church, he says to us, hold fast what you have so that no one take your crown. He said, here are the promises. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. A pillar is something of permanence, is something that's not removed. You don't pull pillars out. 
pillars are there to stay. He said, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God and you'll not be removed from it anymore. It's security. It's hope. It's, it's, it's safety. And then he says, I'll write upon him the name of my God. You know that in the last days, men, women, and boys and girls are going to be asked to take some kind of special mark and they're not going to be able to work without it. They're not going to be able to buy and sell without it. All and we've looked at that in, in these churches. They were already facing some of those same kind of situations. But he said, I will write on him the name of my God. And I will write on him the name of the city of my God. Citizenship was very important in the Roman Empire. Paul, even once in a difficult situation to get himself out of trouble, pulled his own citizenship card, so to speak, and said, hey, you can't do that to me. I'm a citizen of Rome because it was very special. It carried with it certain privileges. You could lose that in these churches. But Jesus said one of the things you won't lose is citizenship in my kingdom. Paul wrote in Revelation, or Philippians 3.20, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, not in Jerusalem. Our citizenship is in heaven, out of which we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, I'll write upon him my new name. Like the seal of the emperor, which carried great authority equivalent to the signature of the emperor himself, it validated the document as genuine. He said, you're going to be the genuine article. Everybody's going to know that you belong to me because my name will be on you. So who do you belong to as you sit in this service? Now, last thing, the whole world is on edge. We all feel like something is about to happen. So what is the greatest need in the life of the church? The greatest need is for us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to keep trusting him, to keep clinging to his promises, to remember he is heaven's champion. He is still the ruler of the kings of the earth. All of them. The little rocket man in North Korea, Netanyahu in Israel, Putin in Russia, what is, whatever his name is, I can't pronounce, in China, Biden in our own country. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. He's sovereign and he's in control. He is the all ruler. He's the almighty. We can keep our eyes on him. What's the greatest need of the people in Israel? Their greatest need is to turn to Jesus. That's the great hope of scripture, the moment when all Israel is the New Testament never uses the word restored. It uses the word saved. 